Uh, Genesis 1, that's basically on page 1 of your Bible. And I'm going to be reading from Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to uh, chapter, uh, verse 25. So it's verse 1 to verse 25. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God gave the expanse, sorry, God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which, uh, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights: the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, 
livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Thanks, Granger, for that reading. And folks, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's great to have you with us in our series on the book of Genesis. Is this going? Uh, not yet. Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, in our series in the book of Genesis. Let me pray, and then we'll start straight away. Father, you are there. You, you may be invisible, so no one here can see you, but you are there and you speak. You are a talking God. And this morning as we come to these words, will you speak to us again? Please. We are dull of hearing, we are easily distracted, and our hearts are cold. Please won't you open our ears, keep us focused and warm our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a look in your Bibles at those first four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Last week, we began our series in Genesis. By the way, it's eight weeks. So there's only six after this one, because eight minus two is six. Eight-week series in the book of Genesis. And last week we focused just on those four words. In the beginning, God. Pretty much the whole talk was on those four words. And I'm not going to repeat what I said, except because we have some visitors, and I think it's good, to remind you why we're studying the book of Genesis. Why are we studying this book. It's not because we've got a weird preoccupation with ancient Hebrew thought. It's not that we have some sort of fascination with all things antiquarian. I mean, you have to think about it, really. Here we are, gathered this morning, a whole lot of us, you look rather intelligent to me, and here we are studying a text that is 3,500 years old. What possible relevance can this have in our modern world? And no wonder the folks that are buying newspapers at the garage and walking their little dogs past us to their little homes are thinking that we, are, we seriously have something wrong with us. We are studying a text that is 3,500 years old. Why study it at all? And the answer is, we are studying this book, Genesis, is because I want to know how to live my life tomorrow, on Monday. That's why I'm studying this ancient book. I want to know how to live my life on Monday. If it's not relevant, it's not important. Well, I think the book of Genesis is very relevant. And here's why, and we looked at a bit of this last week. It's because the beginning or source of a thing unlocks the principle of that thing, which is a fancy way of saying that if you don't understand the source or origin of something, you will never understand that thing. If you don't know where something comes from, 
you'll never understand that thing. And you won't know how to relate to it. Imagine you're walking along the beach. Coincidentally, I was on the beach yesterday. I mean, I never go to the beach, but it just so happens I was on the beach yesterday. Imagine you're walking along the beach. It's a lovely day, blue skies, uh, sand, and look what you find. One of these, lying in the sand, just as you're walking along. And you pick it up and you think to you, well, what do you think? You look around at the sky, you look at the beach, look at the sea, and you think, I reckon, give or take two billion years, it led to this. I reckon this is a chance. All these things have just come together to produce this. Or, you look at this and you look at the surfers out there and you think to yourself, ah, this comes from a surfboard. Ah, it's got a purpose. I know, this sits at the bottom of the board. This has been made, it's been designed. What it is, is as you're riding a wave, if you don't have this, you just slide out. This gives you grip. Oh, that's what it is. It must come from one of those boards. I think I'll walk over and say, hey guys, one of you has lost your... What a world of difference. One is a state of absolute ignorance. The other is a state of understanding. And that's why we study the book of Genesis. Because if we know the source or origin of something, we understand the thing and we know how to respond appropriately. People who don't know the source or origin of something don't understand themselves. They don't understand the world they live in and it leads to hurt and frustration and emptiness. In the beginning, God tells us that the source of everything is God. The origin of everything is God. He may have used processes, I don't know, but I know that He is the source and the origin of everything. He is eternal, and it doesn't just mean that He's the source of everything. This is where we're getting closer to today. It also means that He's the subject of everything. Think a little bit. God is the subject of everything. That means it's all about Him. It says, in the beginning, God. So, what do you expect the rest of the Bible to be about? God. It's all about Him. He's the only absolute and the measure of everything. And that's why, in the last talk and today, the whole series is going to be about God. The whole talk on Genesis. You might have come looking for a scientific talk. You might have come looking for some, I don't know. But you will find that as we preach and teach this book of Genesis, the subject is going to be God. Because He is the most important thing in all the universe. The Bible does not begin like this. In the beginning, man. It doesn't begin like that. Because God is the subject. Now, I've got a little something for you. Listen to this. I came across this quite a while ago. Imagine if the Bible did begin like this. In the beginning, man. Here's somebody who did a little parody of what the world would look like. It's a little bit dated, but I still think it's very clever. Listen carefully. In the beginning, man said, let there be power. And there was power. And man saw that the power looked good. And he called those who sought power great leaders. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then man said, let there be divisions among all peoples and divide those who are for my power from those who are against my power. And it was so. 
The hostile people he called them. The friendly people he called us. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then man said, let us gather together our power into one place and create one empire of control, brainwashing and indoctrination. To control men's minds. Militia, secret peace, police to control men's behavior. Myths and symbols to control men's emotions. And it was so. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then man said, let there be censorship to divide the propaganda from the truth. And he made two great bureaus, one to write the news for those who are with us, and another to write the news for those who aren't with us. And it was so. The evening and the morning was the third day. Then man said, let us make engines of destruction that can exterminate every form of life that moves on the face of the earth and the sea. So man made weapons of war, missiles, bombs, lethal germs, chemicals. He called this arsenal defense and deterrence. The evening and the morning were the second day. And I think this part is the most clever. Then man said, let us make God in our own image and let him take the blame for the suffering we shall cause. So man made God in his own image. In the image of man, he created him. Capitalism, free markets, socialism, he called them. And he said, rampage unfettered, extend your dominion over the whole earth, shatter the peace, rape the environment, exploit, oppress and kill. So man saw all that he had made and behold, it was very, very bad. There was evening and morning, the last day. Clever, hey? It's dated, but it's clever. Thank God the Bible says, in the beginning, God. What a relief that is to me. Well, let's see what we learn about God from this passage. Three things from this passage that Granger read to us. God is personal. It should be God is relational. That's not your fault, Julie. I wrote that wrong. But never mind. God, the first point actually says, you wouldn't think so, but it actually says God is relational. Second, God is a God of order. Thirdly, God is good. Notice God is the subject of our talk this morning because it's all about God. First of all, God is relational. Let's look at the passage. You couldn't help have noticing that it keeps saying, and God said. Did you see that? I'm sure you did. And God said, verse 3, and verse 6, and God said, verse 9, and God said, verse 11, and God said, verse 14, and God said, verse 20, and God said, etc., etc. It goes on and on. God creates through his words. What does this tell us about God? What are we being told here? Why is it being repeated again and again and again? Well, there's a couple of obvious things. First of all, it tells us that God is powerful. His words have inherent authority. Where's the power in church? Here it is, here. We're busy studying it. God's words have inherent power. We love to sing. We want to sing a lot. We want to sing better. There's no power in singing. It might make you feel something, but there's no power in it. The power is in God's word because he creates through his word and so we study his word. That's obvious. 
But it also, perhaps even more obviously, tells us that God can speak. That's <laughs> pretty obvious, eh? But he can. And some people might find this strange. It would be ridiculously strange if God was dumber than you or I. That would be strange if God was dumber than us. No, the fact that God speaks tells me he's a talking God. In fact, if you look at talking people, I think it's obvious that somebody who can talk made us. Wouldn't you say that's obvious? Well, I suppose you could look, you know, when it rains. I suppose you could, which doesn't happen in Perth. But uh, pretending it rains, and you could find a mud pond. I suppose you could stare at a mud pond and think, give this two billion years and a talking person is going to come out of there. I mean, you could choose to believe that. But I would say the fact that we speak tells me whoever made this can talk also. It would be pretty crazy if you couldn't. But it also teaches us the fact that, and God said, and God said, and God said, it also tells me that creation is an expression of God. Think about it. He spoke it into being. Creation is an expression of God. Pretty much like you can see something of an artist in his work. I mean, who knows what was going on in like Picasso's head. But you can see something of an artist in his work. So you can see something of God in his creation. Creation is an act of self-disclosure on God's part. Speech is the way one person reveals themselves to another person. And so God created as an act of disclosure. So it's not like God was in heaven and he's so powerful. Uh, how do I put this? He clicked his fingers and, oh, oh, oh there's a universe. Well, would you know? It's not, God didn't create by accident. He created in order to speak, to reveal himself, to communicate to us. And folks, if we're honest, if we're honest, we know this is true. It's very hard to avoid. If you study the human cell, and I didn't do biology at school uh, for lots of reasons, but you go to biology and you look at, uh, what's that thing, a microscope, and you look down at the complexity of a cell. It's God speaking. It speaks of God's complexity and design. His sheer brilliance. It whispers to you, I'm here. I want you to know me. Go bigger than the cell. Go to the galaxies and the astronomers and all that sort of thing. And what does it tell you? It shouts at you that God is there. That he's massive. He's huge. And it tells you when you're quiet and you finally take the headphones out and stop listening to Metallica, and you listen, you will hear it says, I'm here, I'm big, and I want you to know me. One of my favourite illustrations of this is the movie Contact with Jodie Foster. Do you remember that movie? Long time ago, I'm very old. Well, anyway, here's the thing. She's standing with her dad, and they're both amateur astronomers, and they're looking at the stars, and it's, it's pretty moving. And she looks to her dad, and she says, Dad, do you think there's life out there? And he thinks for a while, I can't remember his name, he actually, he's always in lots of movies, and he says to Jodie Foster, I don't know, sweetheart, 
But you know what, if there isn't, it's an awful waste of space. No, no, it's not an awful waste of space. The reason it's so big is because God is trying to tell you something. That he's big. That he's there and he's big. Go up to the north. I've just come from Lansland the whole day yesterday. Go up north. You have to go further than Lansland. And go inland. Look at those flowers. Look at the design and the color. And it tells you about God's aesthetics. That he's beautiful. And it whispers to you, get to know me. It's all God speaking to us. I'm there. I'm big. I'm incredibly clever. I'm beautiful. Get to know me. I'll never forget when Naomi and I lived in our first house when we got married together. We had a, a lovely guy living next door, good friend. He was a Hindu. And he had his first child. Do you remember Naomi? And uh, he came he came home with this little thing, this little baby, and he knocked on my door, and we had shared that we were Christians and all that. And he said to me, he was uh, quite moved, and he said, tell me more about this God. Because the, the, the little baby shouts at him, there is a God who is personal, and he wants you to know him. These verses teach us in Genesis 1 to 25, as it says, and God said, teach us that God is... That, that's, that's incredible. Did you do that? that well done. That God is relational. He's communicating. He wants us to know him. But secondly, second thing we learn from these verses is that God is a God of order. How many of you think that's boring? Oh, God is a God of order. That means he always wears longs, socks and shoes and a tie. Folks, order doesn't mean conservative. God is a God of order. That sounds boring. Well, let me prove it to you from this text and then I want to show you why that is excellent, excellent news. Look again at chapter 1. So It's a long passage. Just look at it. Sort of like smell it. Run your fingers over it. What is the outstanding feature of this text? The outstanding feature, the thing that stands out at you is this. Order is being imposed upon chaos. The, the overriding feature is that there is chaos and slowly, carefully, morning, evening, then this, then that. It's sequential. It's not, you know, when the rabbit comes out of the hat, boing, there it is. It's slow, because you know God could have done that. It's careful, it's slow, it's meticulous. First this, then that, morning, evening, second day. What's the picture? The picture is order. Out of chaos. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew language, this is an astonishing piece of writing. Especially even with numbers. Uh, you know numbers? One, two, numerals. I'm going to show it to you because it's so extraordinary and it's totally lost in the English. The numbers 3, 7 and 10 are used very carefully throughout this passage. 
especially number 7, because 3 plus 7 equals 10. Let me show you. The first sentence in this passage in the Hebrew has got seven words in it. The second sentence in the Hebrew has got 14 words in it. The words heaven and earth appear 21 times. God said 10 times. Three times with man, seven times for the rest of creation. Let there be is used three times for creatures in earth and seven times for creatures below. To make the word bara, which we've looked at, is used ten times. According to its kind is used ten times. God blessed three times. Create three times. And three times on the third time. And it was so seven times. God saw that it was good seven times. And of course, seven days. Morning, evening the first. Morning, evening the And there are seven of them. What you've got is a picture of order being imposed on chaos. Have a look again at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Fun Hebrew words. Tohu vavohu. It's rhyming. Without form and void. Very hard to translate into English. Without form means it didn't have a context. It didn't have a realm. It didn't have space. Without, uh, void means it was empty, vacuum, nothing in it. Now watch what God does. And I've got a picture for you. What you've got in the six days of creation is fulfilling and creating in the context of those two words. The earth... Uh, have I got a laser on here? Look. Where's, where's my spaniel when I need him? Okay, look here. The earth was formless and void. And so what God does over six days is He creates the days of forming. He creates context. He creates realms, if you want to use that word. So day one, He creates light. Day two, sea and sky. Day three, land and vegetation. Very orderly, very sequentially. Then what God does is he fills those realms. On day four, he creates the sun, the moon and the stars to fill that realm. On day five, he creates sea creatures and birds which fill the sea and the sky. And on day six, he creates land-based creatures and people. Next sermon, next Sunday, is just about man and woman. But he creates people and they fill the land and the vegetation. And then we'll look at day seven, which is not really a day at all. It it clearly is a never-ending state of shalom. God's perfect, orderly creation. But there you have it. What's the picture you get though? The picture is one of order. God is a God of order. And our experience, you can leave that up for now, and our experience confirms this. Now folks, and I haven't told you yet why this is good news. The scientific idea that chaos gives rise to order is laughable. I'm sorry, I should, be more, I should be more humble, but it's hysterical. That chaos can give rise to order is impossible and you can scientifically disprove it. Take an apple, put it on the table and leave it for a couple of years. See if it becomes more complex. 
stupid becomes something more sophisticated. I'm wagering, just like half the onions and tomatoes in our fridge, it will become less than it was. Non-Christians who believe that chaos gave rise to order are unscientific. The fact of the matter is an orderly God created order out of chaos. In fact, most people know this. What I did was I went onto that system of all knowledge and wisdom, Google, and I looked up the word cosmos. Listen to the definition of the word cosmos. Cosmos is the universe as a well-ordered whole. These are not Christians. This is just general definitions. How about this? Cosmos is the universe as an embodiment of order and harmony. And I couldn't believe this. As distinguished from chaos. See, your average scientist who studies the world knows, ought to know that God is there because it's ordered. Here's another definition. Cosmos refers to a universe that is completely harmonious an orderly system. The whole cosmos shouts, there is a God and he's orderly. How do you escape this? There is the astronomer, not a Christian, famous, Jeffrey Marcy. He's studying the solar system. He writes a lot on it. And he writes this, they're all in the same plane talking about the planets, not in the same aeroplane. They're all in the same plane. They're all going around in the same direction. You know, it's perfect. It's gorgeous. It's almost uncanny. Don't you want to grab him by the ears? Say, tell the truth. It's God. It's obvious. How can you resort to a word like uncanny? That's not very scientific, is it? It's God. It's obvious. But you might think, well, you've proved that God is a God of order. Is it good news? Folks, it's wonderful news because order produces joy. It's joy all the time. You know what amazes me? is you get these emo rock bands, these punk bands, Rage Against the Machine, and actually I used to like them, but that's another subject. But you get all these bands, and they rage against order, and they try and undo order, and it's chaos, and that. But when they're playing their music, it's always four over four. It's always, it's all written. Imagine a rock band raging against order, and they get their guitars and drums, and they go, go. And everyone does what they please. No, they still followed. They're all perfectly ordered. You know, I don't understand 4 over 4, 12 over 3 and all those things you get in music. But it's order. You can't escape order. And when they eat, it still goes in, still comes out, still orderly. You can't escape it. It's joy. But not only is God a God of order, thank God, He's also good. He is so good. And that's the other thing that this passage shouts out at us. It keeps saying this, and God saw 
it was good. Seven times, in case you and I don't get it, seven times it is repeated and God saw that it was good. Now let's think about that. What does good mean? When it says, and God saw that it was good, what does it mean? Let me tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that there is some universal standard of good and bad and God passed. He kept up the standard. That is, that there is some rule of good and evil and God himself submits to that rule. That's not true, and that's not what it says. I'll tell you why. Because God is eternal. And therefore, there are no rules unto which God himself submits. He is above and beyond everything. Here's the rule. God is the rule. God defines what is good. God doesn't, good doesn't define God. God defines good. I'll prove it to you, because whatever he makes is good. That's what the text says. God said, and it was good. That is, whatever comes out of the mouth of God is good. By definition, whatever God does is good. He cannot but do good. His actions and his thoughts and his words are not subject to some scrutiny, some universal standard, because God said it is good. Because God did it, it's good. God didn't create. Make something. Oh dear. Oh dear. No, that's not very good. I'll try again. Whatever God does is by definition good. And therefore, whatever is good is whatever conforms to God. He is the ultimate source. Some of you might be thinking, ah, oh, does that mean God is arbitrary, capricious? No, he's always consistent with himself. He is good in all that he does. What is good, according to this? Whatever conforms to God's purposes. Whatever conforms to God's purposes, that is good. And of course, this is joy again, folks, because purpose speaks of meaning and joy and a sense of direction. If this was not true, if there was no purpose, if there was no God behind this, you might as well go and smash bus stops. Because you have no purpose. There's nothing else to do. You've got no rhyme, no reason. But God is good. And His purposes bring joy and satisfaction. And heroes, I am staring at a whole lot of witnesses. You know this. Go outside this door, look up at the sky, and it's red. No, it's blue because he's good. He's kind. Look at the colours God has made. Breathe in. It's so satisfying. It's so good. Food. Why didn't God just grow vitamin trees or pharmacies and you just get your multi it? But it's full of colours and textures and tastes. Everything that we experience shouts at us, God is good. Of course, sin begins with a rejection of this idea. 
sin begins with a rejection of the idea that God is... I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll look at this uh, when we come to Genesis 3. But all sin is about saying God is not good. And therefore I will have to find good by myself. I will have to find the apple or whatever it is. Well, here's what we've seen this morning. God is relational. That is, he's disclosing himself. If you don't have a relationship with this God, it's because you don't want one. Because he's revealing himself in everything. Secondly, uh, and he's a talking God. Secondly, God is a God of order. The universe shouts that there is a God who is a God of order. And that brings us stability and security and joy. And thirdly, God is Well, this is the creation account, Genesis 1, but the Bible doesn't end here. Because what happens is you take all of the history of the Bible and you go forward and this God comes into our world. He becomes a man. Ultimately, he dies on a cross. And that's where we see that this is so, so true. God is relational. Well, the Word became flesh. And he actually came and lived amongst us and spoke to us. More than that, he's so relational that he would die on a cross in order to reach us, to become friends with us. Not only is he a God is a God of order, when we get to the cross of Jesus Christ, what we see there is God is such a God of order that he won't abandon his principles of justice. And because we've rebelled against him, his own son has to die because God is just and at the same time relational, seeking a relationship with us. And of course, God is good. So good. When you look at the life of Jesus Christ, God's son, who can say that he's evil? I've never heard anyone accuse him of that. He's so good in all that he does, ultimately dying for it. Now, here's my question. Isn't he worth knowing? Isn't it worth getting to know a God? Can, can there really be, I'm being serious, and I, ha, I do card surf and surf, is there something out there better than him? Is there? Someone found something better than him? Isn't he worth seeking? More than just once. Oh yeah, no, I tried God. Didn't work for me. Isn't he worth putting effort into? I want to know this God. Well, I'll leave that thought with you. So this is what the Bible teaches us about God. Why don't we spend a moment's quiet thinking about this great God and then I'll pray. In the beginning, God. As the Bible carries on, we start learning about you, that you are relational, 
that You speak. That You are a God of order. That You are good. These are deep truths which Your Word reveals to us. Creation confirms it. Creation gives us the suspicion. But Your Word comes and nails it. How we thank You for this revelation. Father, my prayer is that no one here will be satisfied with anything less than knowing You and growing in their knowledge of You. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.